This is Chapter 38 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. We're back from our break, and this week we have the untold story of American women who worked in secret to correct German and Japanese codes during World War II. Then we dive into the weird world of quack medicine. And finally, we'll introduce you to a new mystery author worth checking out. You're probably familiar with the Oscar-nominated film Hidden Figures, which told the story of black female mathematicians who worked behind the scenes at NASA at the height of the space race. If you were like me, you were surprised it took so long for their story to be told. Well, it turns out they aren't the only women whose stories have remained hidden. Enter author Liza Mundy and her new book, Code Girls, the untold story of the American women codebreakers of World War II. Code Girls is the untold story of more than 10,000 women who in uh, 1941 and 1942 were recruited by the U.S. Army and the U.S. Navy to come to Washington, D.C. and uh, break enemy codes uh, being sent by the Japanese and German militaries primarily. Um, World War II was a war of signals, transmissions. There were Armies and navies spread out all over the globe. They were communicating by radio, and it was critically important uh, to us to intercept and break those uh, transmitted messages. It was really the the dawn of cybersecurity and hacking. In some ways, these women were early hackers because they were hacking into these enemy systems and um, and at the same time protecting our systems. Uh, so they were they were doing early cybersecurity work as well. The story is not unlike. Uh, hidden figures and these women who worked in the backgrounds at NASA. How did you come to find out about these women? Yes, it, just to, to your point, you're exactly right. These women were the hidden figures of the greatest generation. And uh, I came upon their story in conversation with um, some female historians and curators at the Cryptologic Museum, which is attached to the National Security Agency in Fort Meade, Maryland. That's the NSA, which is a, a well-known and somewhat controversial federal agency. Now it's in charge of eavesdropping and surveillance. And what's interesting is that's the agency that came out of these wartime code-breaking operations. That's what we were doing. We were doing eavesdropping and surveillance of, of the enemy and pinpointing enemy movements, the movements of ships, um, both Navy vessels and also supply ships in the Atlantic and the Pacific. Uh, so I talked to historians and curators. Uh, in the end, I spent months at the National Archives looking through memos, records, rosters. I got in touch with women whose names were on those rosters. I interviewed at least 20 surviving code girls. Uh, so it was a combination of archival work and, and live interviews with actual women who vividly remember doing this work, which in, in many cases, it was the most most important experience of their lives. When you spoke with these women, what was their reaction to know that someone finally wanted to bring this story of theirs into the light? That's such a great question. The women had been so good about keeping the secret. The The importance of secrecy was made clear to them every day while they were doing this work. They were told if anybody asked what they did during the war, they were to say that they were secretaries, that they emptied waste baskets and filled inkwells. So that's what they told people. And of course, because they were women, people believed that the work they were doing was unimportant and really not worth asking about. So after the war, they kept that secret for 
decades and decades, even after the vow of secrecy was formally lifted by the government, nobody really told them. Uh, They started to realize, though, that histories and memoirs of wartime code breaking were being written and that the women's story wasn't being told. Uh, I think that thanks to books like Hidden Figures, there's now a much more receptive audience in the American public to believe these stories and understand the roles that women have played. So when I was doing my interviews, I would say that the women are now very eager to have their stories told and to be recognized, even in some small way. And and several of them said in the course of the interviews, I just hope I live to see the book published. Um, it, it, it was very meaningful work. They knew it was important to keep the secret, but I think they would be very gratified and are very gratified now by, by getting some credit for their, their contribution to American history. So I guess part of the reason it's taken so long for us to learn their story is that whole history of secrets and the Secrecy Act you're talking about. But why else do you think that these are just stories that don't get told? Yes, it's it's the Secrecy Act and the women keeping the secrets, but it's also, I have to say, it's because history ignored them. And when I was doing the research for this book, I, of course, read the many books that are out there about heroic code-breaking in World War II typically written by uh, male historians, sometimes memoirs written by male, by naval officers and code breakers. And these books would literally mention in a paragraph or sometimes just a parenthetical, oh, by the way, the bulk of this work was done by women. But the women would not be interviewed often in the books or almost always. Their, their role was neglected, I think, because historians were persisting in the idea that the work the women did, you know, couldn't have been as important as the work that the men did. But it was. And more than half of our code-breaking force during the war was female. So women were outnumbered the men. And yet, uh, and, and I thought that maybe there wouldn't be that much archival. Maybe that was the reason why, that there wasn't much in the archives. But when I looked in the archives, there were rostos, there were memos, there were, uh, you know, internal histories, and and there was so much more information than I thought there would be. So I I really think it's fair to say that their role has been overlooked. And and certainly right after the war, when there there was some attention given to the code breaking um, by members of Congress on the floor of Congress, they would always describe the cryptographers as men. Uh, So even just even immediately after the war, when some of this started getting out, the women role was this, it was essentially written out of history. Now I know that you've write, written about women's issues in the past. Why do you think it's so important that we know about what these women did and their contributions? Well, for two reasons. I mean, purely to to fill out the historical record, to make sure that the historical record is complete. Uh, so, so purely for the sake of history, but also it's so important. I mean, we know vividly that women are being unfairly excluded from the tech industry, uh, from Silicon Valley. I've written about this as a journalist. The the dearth of women uh, in startups or in the big tech companies that are so important and so prosperous. It's such a, an important part of our economic sector. Uh, and it's it's important for people to understand that women do belong in these fields and that not only do women belong in these fields, but in many cases, the women actually pioneered the fields. So much of the computing industry came out of wartime STEM innovations, including code breaking, uh, which is, as I said, essentially 
hacking and cybersecurity and early computers were used in this work, and the women in many cases were the ones who were running them. So when you read something like the infamous Google memo from the ex-Google engineer saying, well, you know, maybe women aren't biologically as suited for this work, that's just preposterous. I mean, women were, uh, women were doing this work before men were. Well, Liza Mundy, author of Co-Girls, thank you so much for sharing this incredible story with us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Leeches, ice pick lobotomies, radium spa hotels, cocaine toothache drops, tobacco toothpaste. At some point in human history, all of those things were considered medicine. In Quackery, A Brief History of the Worst Ways to Cure Everything, Dr. Lydia Kang and historian Nate Peterson dive into the weird and wacky ways humans have tried to cure what ails them. I spoke with Dr. Kang about some of the more outlandish treatments. As a doctor, what drew you to write about this really quirky subject? Well, I have had an interest in the history of medicine since I started studying for medicine since I was pre-med in college, but it never occurred to me to actually put something together um, that was this extensive. So um, my writing partner and I, uh, Nate Peterson, he actually came up with that idea. And the second that he said the word quackery, we just I just jumped on it. I thought, this is going to be fantastic. I can think of a million things off the top of my head that I would like to talk about. And uh, it just kind of went from there. So I sort of had the seed in me all the time, and I was waiting for the spark that Nate brought. And together, we just wrote this really fun book. Nowadays, people associate (laughs) quacks as people with dubious medical credits trying to make a quick buck. But you make a point in the book to say that a lot of these things were cures that were innovative and the results of wanting a quick solution to a really bad problem. That is true. Um, you know, if we go by the actu- the technical definition of, of quackery, there are a lot of things in the book that don't necessarily fall under pure quackery. And we wanted to spend some time talking about some of the historical treatments that we today look back and completely laugh at. But it's really important to note that several of those treatments actually did turn into things that were um, quite useful in the modern era. Um, it's also really important to know that a lot of the intentions were good. Um, people who were bloodletting and using leechcraft and causing their patients to throw up and have horrible diarrhea with these really toxic medications, I mean, they were really, they truly did believe in the humoral theory. They really believed that this was the only way that they could treat yellow fever and these other terrible diseases. So we have to give them a little respect as well um, to consider that they were coming from a different point of view. There are no shortage of examples in this book. Do you have a favorite? Um, I'm going to get asked that a lot. And I'm, I can't help but say that my favorite chapter, my favorite subject is the cannibalism chapter, um, particularly because it's so in-your-face horrifying. Um, I think it's particularly interesting because we do use other bodies to cure ourselves, not in a cannibalistic way. We don't consume them, but we do blood transfusions, we do liver transplants, and yet there isn't the same kind of gross-out factor with that as there is with, say, uh, breast milk banks. 
which a lot of people find kind of repulsive. So I, I find that um, very interesting in the modern age, how we pick and choose what we find to be disgusting. Um, and yet there's also this large history of us consuming other dead human bodies, and we used to think that was completely okay. So I, I find that entire concept pretty interesting. And you touch on a little bit what my next question to you is going to be. Um, some of these bad ideas and these mis- misconceptions, they still exist nowadays, don't they? They do. They do. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, in the halls of cancer quackery, there are several different treatments that have been debunked over and over again. Um, but they are still available. You know, if you sort of look around um, the Internet and you try to find, you know, these um, these cures for, you know, the grape cure or um, taking this, uh, you know, strange medicine called Leitrile. I might be pronouncing that wrong, but it's the cyanide-type medication. And there are people who really still support that, even though the science behind it has been, de- been debunked mul- multiple times. So that's pretty frustrating. I had all kinds of feelings while reading this book from complete, <laughs> from completely grossed out and feeling woozy to laugh out loud. And I, and I think the, the line about the poor nutless weasel is probably my favorite. Um, is it, do you need a sense of humor to do what you do? Um, yes, you do. I have a pretty healthy sense of humor and um, Nate and I, when we were writing this, we would text each other with some of the choicest spines and just be laughing over it. And we made a very conscious choice to make the book humorous because so much of it is awful in a lot of ways. And the only way to kind of absorb how ridiculous some of them are, are through humor. Um, so, you know, we tried to find a balance between um, education and the um, the research and historical aspects with, you know, a touch of humor. But yeah, when it comes down to it, I can laugh like a 13-year-old without a problem <laughs> about anything. So I think it's pretty important to keep that sense of humor, um, you know, both for writing this book and honestly, like in my medical profession as well. So I know you're a practicing doctor. Do you have plans or time to write anything else in the future? Um, there's always plans to write something else. Um, I write um, this is actually my first nonfiction book, and um, outside of this, I have been writing fiction for young adults as well as adults. So I have two more um, fiction books coming up the pipe next year, so I'm working on those. And as far as nonfiction goes, I think Nate and I are definitely going to try to write something else. We had so much fun writing this. Um, it was really just an exciting topic, and I'm sure there's plenty of others that we can tackle. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today to talk about quackery, a brief history of the worst ways to cure everything. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. If you're looking for a new author to read, allow me to introduce you to Daniela Burnett. She's the writer of the Emmeline Kirby Gregory Longden Mystery Series. Book three, which just came out in September, is called From Beyond the Grave. I recently spoke with her about her series and the joy of finally getting published. 
Well, it's about a journalist, Emmeline Kirby, and a jewel thief. Uh, they're both British. Um, the first book takes place in London and Venice. The second place, uh, the second book takes place in London, and the new book takes place in Torquay, which is um, in Devon, along the uh, English Riviera. There, um, my two characters. Um, well, it, it starts off in the first book. They, um, they're they former lovers. They hadn't seen each other in two years, and they literally bump into one another um, in Venice after she sees uh, two men try to kill uh, a colleague of hers. And then things evolve from there, and there are tensions in their relationship um, because he had left her, um, but now she's starting to have feelings for him again, but she's not quite sure that she can trust him. And who's the journalist and who's the jewel thief? Um, The journalist is the woman, Emmeline Kirby, and the jewel thief is Gregory Longden. So where did you get your ideas from? I have a degree in journalism. So in that respect, I I came up with that to have a journalist. Um, For me, a journalist, uh, I think, is uh, is curious about all things. And of course, murder would be uh, something that she would be interested in and try to find the truth, uh, which is a very is a core of her being. She needs to find the truth and make sure that justice is done. Um, and the jewel thief, I, I thought to have a contrast there. Um, of course, he's on the other side of the law. Um, and he, who better than um, someone on the wrong side of the law to know how a fellow criminal's mind works? And yet, G- Gregory is a gentleman, and murder is not the done thing. So he wants to make sure that uh, justice is done in that sense. So they have um, similarities. And they also have contrasts. And within my little uh, ensemble here, I also have uh, Chief Inspector um, Oliver Burnell of Scotland Yard and his assistant, uh, Sergeant Jack Finch. Um, And Gregory has a a cat and mouse relationship with Burnell, who's always trying to catch him but never can. And he's always needling the, the Chief Inspector. We journalists are a nosy bunch, aren't we? <laughs> yes. It's like we, we really need to know the answers. We need answers. So I know that this isn't your day job. How did you get into writing? Oh, I've always wanted to be a writer. I've wanted to be a writer since I was in fourth grade. And that was um, started by my fourth grade teacher um, in PS41 in Queens, Um once a week, she had creative writing hour, and she gave us a different assignment each week. And I just love that. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> I know that this is a series and book three yes. just came out. Where are you now in the writing process? Um, actually, I'm I'm working on book six right now. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. The, the reason for that, why I'm so far ahead was I was struggling for a long time to find a publisher. And when um, when I did s- submit Lead Me Into Danger, the first book to my publisher, books two and three were finished. And, um, you know, they offered me the contract for Lead Me Into Danger. And I said, um, it, the book can stand alone, but um, it is the first book in a series and two and three are finished. And the editor, the acquisitions editor said, well, I can offer you a three book contract if you're willing because she was, she liked the first book so much. So that's why I'm so far ahead. You know, that's why book three was just released, but I'm working on book six. That must be quite something to be told as a writer. Yes. Yeah. 
that's yeah that's like it was so exciting i was like she's like i can i'm willing i can have the legal department drive because like i was like yes yes that's what i want <laughs> um yeah especially because i had been struggling so long looking for an agent looking for a publisher and to finally have someone willing to accept my work it was it was just amazing how do you keep your spirits up in a situation like that uh, it was it was very difficult because, you know, after a while, you know, I kept submitting, I kept I went on to the next book, finished the next book, and, and I kept struggling looking, and I was getting very frustrated, but everybody kept telling me, whatever you do, don't give up. And this was my dream. So, you know, it's like, if I'm not going to fight for this, who else is going to fight for me? So I just kept going on. I guess then we can expect more books from you. Oh, yes. And until I, I can't think of something, any more trouble for Emmeline and Gregory to get into, there definitely, there's more books spinning around in my head. Well, Daniela, thank you for taking some time to talk to us. I know you have to get back to your busy writing. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I have to get back to my day job. <laughs> So um, anyway, so the the new book is called From Beyond the Grave. So I hope um, people are interested and uh, dip into my book. That's this week's podcast. Have a question or an idea maybe? Email us at books at WCBS880.com. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at WCBS880books for tons of extra content like photos and videos.